Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Dr. Erica Montez. Dr. Montez is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist and the creator of the modern Mujer Women's Health blog. Mujer means woman in Spanish, and there's a little rolling of the R at the end that I'm trying to get better at. Her vision to create this blog started soon after delivering her third son and realizing that there are not many places on the internet for people to find expert information about their health, let alone in English and Spanish. The foundation for her blog combines medical knowledge, life experiences, and approachable personality to create a safe space to learn about your body. She is proud to be one of the few Latina physicians in the United States and hopes her work and visibility can decrease some of the healthcare disparities seen within her community. She practices in Arizona and loves performing minimally invasive gynecological surgery and providing patient advocacy. In today's episode, we dive a little deeper into what it's been like as a physician in the post-Roe era. Dr. Montez will talk about her conversations that she's had with her patients recently that she cares for in Arizona. We will also discuss how limiting access to abortion affects marginalized people, including Black and Hispanic women and those who live in poverty. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good afternoon. We have Dr. Erica Montes. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. So I wanted to start off by talking about what the current abortion law is in Arizona currently. That's where you're practicing. And then I'd love to know if caring for your patients has recently changed in the last few weeks since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, thank you. That's a that's a great question to start out with. So yes, in Arizona, unfortunately, we have a restrictive law where no abortions are allowed unless that vague term, if unless it's to save the life of the, the mother. Right now, what I'm finding is that the closest place that you can get an abortion is actually California. It's about 200 miles away. And it would take a, probably about four hours to drive or travel there. So if a patient is coming to me with questions regarding that, uh, that's kind of where I'm sending them and having them look up. And then there's also New Mexico, which is our other neighboring state, which also has a good, fairly good amount of places to get abortions. And as far as my every day to day practice, you know, I, what I'm seeing in the last few weeks is that a lot of patients are bringing up contraception and are just kind of giving me their feelings about how they navigate through this new world that we're living in right now. I think a lot of patients are fearful, but then there's kind of a, that's kind of like the prevailing emotion, but there's like a mix of anger and confusion. Like, what does this mean for me in the future? And how can I 
how can I prevent an un- unintended pregnancy and from being in a situation that that's less than ideal? So, so yes, I think in general, I've seen a lot of change in the talks that we're having during my patient care and, and visits. And then it's more of me just trying to be a resource for these people. You know, that you mentioned that I, I wanted to bring this up because I'm sure you've seen this as well. But I've even heard from people from all over the country and in some of these states that have some of the strictest bans, mm-hmm. they're totally changing their family planning traje- trajectory, where they're saying, you know, I wanted to have X amount of children, but, you know, I already have two. And now I'm scared because I had complications with the first two. And so I don't want to take any chances because within my state, you know, I'm afraid I might die or, you know, have you had any women or people coming to you that have said that to you where they they say, you know, I I really wanted this, but now I'm just nervous being in a state where things are more restricted that I'm, I'm deciding not to have more children? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we had COVID kind of as the first hit for women. <laughs> and then now we have this Roe v. Wade overturn- rule that was overturned. So it's almost like a double whammy because we're kind of I already saw women wanting to change their family planning and how to space out their, their children and when, when to have children and when not to have children because of COVID. And then, you know, we kind of had a little, seemed like a few months of, of breath of fresh air. And then we got hit with this. And so now it's kind of back to the, back to the drawing board. You know, I do, I do take care of a lot of patients who are people of color, Latinas and, and, black women. So with my Latina patients, I have had more patients bringing in their partners to help them make a decision together. And now it seems like we are talking more about permanent contraception, which includes sterilization, which or also known as a tubal ligation. And then I'm also really talking about vasectomy, because that's something that we cannot forget about. And we need to, we need everyone to realize that it can be just as effective as a tubal ligation, and it's a lot safer for patients. Have you had a lot of these patients, are they wanting to just finish their family planning? Is this like, or were they hoping maybe to extend their family and now they're thinking, no, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do something more long-term like that? Or yeah. Is it just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a long-term solution for them because they're also there's also that fear that, you know, if they take away this ability for us to be able to control how we, if we want to be pregnant or not, what's next? Are we going to, are we going to lose our ability to use contraception or have access to it? So yes, permanent contraception is definitely on everyone's radar and there's more requests for that. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that. I haven't, you know, I haven't addressed this yet within my podcast episodes, but talking about this worry about access to contraception. I try so hard to to keep it all together when I do these episodes, but it's like really wild to me that we're even talking about this. You know, I don't know how we got here. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is one thing, but then to to think, you know, oh my gosh, you know, could this be off the table where we have the ability to decide when you know, and sometimes in the, in these cases sometimes the contraception fails or sometimes other things happen but at least we have the the ability to you know go and get an IUD or go and get birth control pills or you know one of these really long term options like a vasectomy or a tubal ligation and to think that those might be off the table in the future you know i didn't even think about that i didn't even think about women or people coming to you and saying listen you know we need to figure this out 
right now before something else comes, you know, I feel, I feel like anything's on the table now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like- so the old, so what I'm finding is the older women and, and usually married, married women are the ones who are wanting to do the permanent contraception. And then now it's the, the younger women that are mentioning or wanting to know more about IUDs or the, the implant that goes in the arm, because those are what we call long acting reversible contraceptive methods or VARCs is what they're more commonly known as. And they're a great method. They last for many years. They're very effective. And unfortunately there really is not a lot of talk about these methods. They are very common in Europe and they're more well known in other parts of the world, but unfortunately, for in our country, the most common method is the pill. You know, everyone's like, if you say I'm on birth control, you automatically assume the pill. But I think with this new overturning of the of that of the rule, then I think we're going to find that more more women are going are going to want to learn more about these these long acting reversible contraceptive methods. Do you know why it's more common here in the states to? have someone on the pill than it is to have one of these longer acting? You know, I think there just hasn't been a a good enough push. And there, there's a lot of misconceptions. You know, I have patients come to me every day saying, if I get an IUD, I'll gain weight, or it'll get lost in my body, or I won't be able to have kids in the future. And then there's also the, the more common misconception that I hear, especially from moms, if you put an IUD in my daughter, or you can't put an IUD in my daughter, if she hasn't had a, a child yet. That unfortunately is, is definitely a, a false. So I think it's about education. I think it's about bringing up those myths before they they even think of the, think of that or and, and also with social media there's a lot of myths out there that that people address which you know which they don't know the truth about and we have these some we have some people pulling their own IUDs out and talking about how to do that oh so my God. yes <laughs> I'm like what's happening and so now everyone's like oh shoot I should have pulled it out probably <laughs> but I think I think it's just it's just more of us trying to educate patients on, on these, on these methods and then just dispel those myths. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking right now it's, it's much better for a patient to be on something more longer acting like that because it eliminates the possibility of you not taking your pill on time. Right. I mean, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a lot. I don't know what the percentages of people that are seeking out abortion, but some of these people, you know, were on contraception and it failed, you know? And so you, you eliminate that failure aspect. I mean, not completely, you know, I mean, an IUD still has like, what is it? It's like, extremely small percentage of women that will get pregnant, but you kind of eliminate that when you don't have to worry about it. it. You just put it in, you don't worry about it again. And, and that's really nice. Yeah. You know, the a birth control pill can have up to a 15% failure rate, whereas we're looking at these IUDs and the, the implant in the arm, I mean, less than 1%. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that margin of error is huge, especially right. if you're trying to avoid unintended pregnancies. Have you read the Turnaway study? No, I have not. So it's, you know, it was a study, obviously, that was conducted by Diane Foster, and she had interviewed women over the period of 10 years. It was like, I think it was 2007, 2008 until 2017 or 18. And so I'm reading the book because basically she just breaks 
everything down when it comes to, she interviewed all these women who were either given or denied an abortion. And so a lot of her stats and everything that she mentions here is is used in a lot of like articles and is mentioned a lot because she just they they went through so many different aspects of, you know, what happens to to people that are are denied. And so I love this section. It it talks about a- access to contraception, right? And we don't often think about this. I mean, you know, you can just go to your women's health provider and you can say, "Hey, I, I want to go on birth control," right? We have to remember that not all people have this wonderful access to contraception and wherever they may go, depending on what clinic it is, may not have the mode of contraception that they're looking for. And so there's a whole there's a whole chapter in here that that talks about this. And it talks about the fact that women of color have different, you know, requirements of what they would want in their contraceptive method as opposed to white people. And it's it just kind of goes through and, and not all those things are offered in every different location that you might go to, right? So if you're someone that goes to this clinic and you're really hoping that you could get an IUD, for example, you know, you really don't want to do the pill. You've tried it before. It's maybe it makes you feel really unhappy or, or whatever it might be. And they don't have that for you. Well, maybe you won't want any contraception because you'd rather be without because it makes you feel that horrible, you know? And it's just the access in the US is not there. I think they had said in, in this in this book that 80% of clinics will carry or the clinics will carry like 80% of the different contra- contraception methods. And so that's, you know, that's not 100%. So you could go there and they might not have what you want. And now with the, you know, abortion bans in place, they're shutting down some of these clinics that were family planning clinics that also had access to contraception. So it's just like this, you know, this cycle of, you know, now we're taking away all these places that, that yes, they provided abortion, but now they're also being shut down because of that reason, but they were providing contraception for people as well. And so that place that, you know, those people in that particular area might've gone to, it's gone now. And so now what do they do? Exactly. You know, I told I'm going to check that study out. I've been reading a lot of other books lately, just kind of about the history of abortion, just to kind of get like a little bit more information just for my general knowledge. But I'll definitely check that one out. And that's a great point that you bring up that we mentioned earlier. You know, I think that a lot of people are fearful because they don't know if what's what the next step will be as far as how are they going to limit contraception and access to it. And then in general, as, as a Latina physician and take, and I take care of a good, at least half of my patients are, are Hispanic women, you know, they rely on their family members to help them decide they, they, it, and unfortunately in our culture, speaking about sex and birth control is taboo. So sometimes the first time that a, a Latina speaks about these these important topics are with their physician and it's very, it can be really hard to kind of gauge what they're feeling and what, what they're looking for. And then also there's that aspect of religion and Catholicism in our, in our culture. So, so you're right. I mean, these women of color definitely have a different perspective or outlook on what they're looking for in contraception versus versus white women. And, and I think that plays a role in, in kind of everything that we're talking about today. Right, right. So I really wanted to concentrate on so I, I did a prior episode where, you know, we broke down 
the overturning of Roe and kind of talked about all these different aspects of of how it will affect, you know, maternal mortality and healthcare in general. And, you know, from the, the patient perspective, the provider perspective. Um, but I really want to concentrate on how limiting access to abortion affects marginalized people. So especially concentrating on Black and Hispanic women, and then also concentrating on socioeconomic status, because this is something that is so, so important for us all to understand and all of us to really think about. Because, you know, these people are already having so many issues. They're affected by, you know, this lack of healthcare access, right? So these people are you know, maybe they have no health care and they get pregnant. And so what are they supposed to do? You know, sometimes I think it was uh, I was talking about this with Dr. Perez about a Medicaid in Texas. You know, they were trying to extend Medicaid for like 12 months postpartum to be able to cover what happens to to people that are postpartum and, you know, have these unfortunate incidences where, you know, they'll have eclampsia or, you know, just hypertension or what have you. And they want to try to decrease that mortality rate by extending Medicaid out to 12 months, but they denied it. You know, so it's like, I don't understand, you know, if we're forcing people to, you know, give birth, why are we not also supporting them? It, it, it's it's very wild to me. So I would love for you to to just talk about, you know, the limiting of access to abortion for these marginalized people and, you know, specifically. Yeah, thank you. You know, I think it, it starts with what what you said. I mean, there's so many barriers to, to healthcare for these women, and I see it every day. One thing that that it starts with is like you mentioned, you know, lack of insurance. Sometimes there's also there, there's a lack of transportation. There's this distrust in the medical system for for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately it's also geographical, right? Cause the, most of the bands are in the, in the South and that's where actually half of the country's black population lives. And so that in and of itself makes it harder for these women to have access to to what they need. But yeah, you know, just kind of reviewing one of the things that abortion restrictions cause for these for the people of color is definitely an increase in in the maternal mortality, like you mentioned. I think what I was reading is that we know that women of color are already more likely to die from childbirth related complications and abortions can actually increase this risk as much as 21% for women in general, but for people of color, it can increase as much as more than 30%. So, I mean, that right there tells you that we, we definitely need to be able to have access to help these women and not, I've seen, unfortunately, really bad complications of these women at term where if they would have had an abortion earlier on, then it could have avoided all the morbidity and mortality that that we see. So that's definitely one of the things. And then, you know, I I know that these women, a lot of of these women of color already live in poverty. And and what I have found in my research and what I see in my day-to-day practice too is, I mean, if you deny these women an abortion, I mean, they can be three times more likely to fall below the poverty line within two years. And so it's, it's just, it just perpetuates that cycle of, of poverty, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, exactly. In, in that study I was telling you about, you know, it had quoted that, you know, this is just a thousand women that they had interviewed and studied, but a half of all of those women or more than half of all of those women seeking abortion were living 
below the federal poverty level. And, you know, I don't know if those listening know what, you know, exactly the poverty level is, but I think it's important to understand that's $12,000 for a year for one single living person. And that's $25,000 for a family of four. So if you try to just for a second, put into perspective, think about, you know, the family that you have right now, if you are with your partner and you have two kids, you have to try to live off of $25,000 a year. Now add up all your bills and what you pay for your home and, or, you know, over your rent and, and see if you can figure that out, you know, and then you factor in, we were talking about this very briefly before we started, but then you factor in the fact that childcare in the U.S. is astronomically expensive. And the average cost I I had just looked up before we started this is $16,000 a year. You know, I have four kids. I can attest that we like, we don't have our kids in childcare. We figure it out. I, I decrease the amount of shifts I do when I have this podcast. Like I had to figure it out. And, you know, it's just unbelievable. That's for $16,000 for one child. (laughs) Okay. Like, like, I mean, okay. So you, then you deduct your 16,000, right. From your total, actually, you would actually have to be, it would have to be more than that because you'd have two kids, you know? So you just think about that. And, and now you have no money. You have no money for rent. You have no money for food. You have no money for any of your daily living expenses. And so, you know, I just, I I think, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. And then I think, you know, when you think about how the economy is going right now, and I mean, the price of gas and just everything, food and everything in general is just, you know, skyrocketing. You can imagine Mm -hmm. how, how these people are definitely hurting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the, in this particular study, they had mentioned too that 60% of the women were already mothers, you know, so this wasn't, you know, a majority of, you know, people who have never been pregnant before and never had any children. This is like people that are trying to make ends meet who already have a child or children at home, you know, and are already living below the poverty level to just think about adding another human life into, in, into that situation. I mean, I, you know, I can't even, I can't even imagine trying to figure out, you know, how to feed that child, how to give them a good home, how to give them a good life when you can't even take care of what you, you know, already have. And, and the United States just doesn't have the infrastructure. It doesn't have any of these services for these, for these people. I mean, we are just absolutely not equipped to handle what we are currently asking of the human population. (laughs) I think that what you're, what you're bringing up as far as childcare goes is, you know, another thing that these, that our women of color are noticing is that this restricting abortions and having to bear a child that they're not prepared for, I mean, also increases the chances that they're going to leave the workforce because they have to take care of these kids. And then it, and then in turn that decreases their rate of educational attainment being able to earn, have, you know, increase their earnings. And it's just kind of a domino effect, unfortunately. And and I see that in my, in my patients. Right, right. And then there's, you know, there's just no ability for these, for these people to recover long, I mean, long term, it's just, you know, whatever they were trying to, to do, you have a child. I mean, I think of having a child myself. I mean, it's, it's really, really difficult, you know, to, to try to work, to try to, you know, if you're trying to further your education, I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible. I mean, every single minute of the day is, is really dedicated to, to raising these kids. And so it's, it's really difficult and there's no, you know, there's no universal childcare here. So, you know, you have to figure it all out. And if you don't have that, 
family or friends to lean on. It's it's next to impossible. I think America just has like such an individualized attitude towards everything. Like in in many other cultures, like it's this is a team effort, you know, like raising children is a team effort. And like here it's like, oh, just, oh, you're so amazing. You do it all. You know, I feel like I hate that. I Now I'm getting all on my soapbox, no, but like, do you know, <laughs> like I totally get you. Oh, it's like the, you know, you look at this, you look at a mother, right. And, and, oh, look at her. She's, she's doing, she's like, I don't know. She's taking care she of her be, she can have a family and a career. Yeah. And- look at her. She works out. She does this. Oh, she does it all. Like, that's amazing. And putting these people on pedestals. Oh, my gosh. And I think that's one of the things about social media, one of the many things about social media that drives me crazy because, you know, you see all that you see these mothers. And when I was on my Instagram account and, and doing a lot of this, you know, I was like a, I guess you could call like a motherhood influencer. Like when I reflect back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I hope not in a million years I ever like had people feel like oh my gosh, look at her. She can attain it all. Like she can do it all by herself. Like there's all these things happening in the background. Like perhaps we have family that's helping us with, you know, the childcare. Perhaps we have somebody coming to help us clean the house. Perhaps we have somebody, you know, whatever it might be that that is aiding that person to be able to do what they do, you know, especially if they're in like something like social media where it's, you know, it looks like it's all fun and perfect. Yeah. But it truly takes a village. And so I, I don't know, in America, it's like, well, no, you do it yourself. Everything is, you know, on your own. And there's just, unfortunately, just like no resources for, for anyone. No, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I have three, three younger boys are all under the age of eight. And I mean, I, I'm a full-time OBGYN and I need help and I, and I'm not afraid to ask for help. And I think, I think we definitely need to keep, keep that known in our culture that it's okay to ask for help. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's one of the things too, though, that like, we almost feel like the American culture, it makes us feel bad for reaching out and saying, you know what, I can't do this on my own. You know what I mean? It's almost like you feel guilty for saying that or doing that. And it's like, what on earth? Like, where else would someone not want to help you? Like, but I feel like that's just unfortunately, years in the making what's happened here, you know, and Totally. I don't know. Yeah. No, I totally agree with everything you're you're saying because I see it every day as well. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth sheets allow us to feel like we are sleeping on top of the clouds every night. Their luxury bedding is made with premium 100% viscous from bamboo fabric and helps create the perfect sleeping temperature. They're comfortable, breathable, And I can attest to the fact that they do not pill and get better with each trip through the washing machine. Cozy Earth has developed and crafted high quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth. Cozy Earth Women's Loungewear is crafted from the same breathable and luxurious material as their bedding, and it offers optimal comfort while maintaining a flattering, elegant fit. All of their products are created via direct supply chain and in ethical factories. Fun fact, Cozy Earth has even been featured on Oprah's favorites list four years in a row, and they have a 10-year warranty on all of their products. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today. 35% off site-wide when you use the code Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 35% off. 
The link will also be in the show notes. Yeah. I did also want to bring up, I had wrote this down just to mention it, but you know, as you already mentioned, of course, you know, black women die of maternal causes three times the rate of white of white women, but also that black and Hispanics are they're 1.8 to 1.5 times as likely to be in poverty than white people. So as you mentioned, and you know, as we mentioned many times, this is just perpetuating, you know, this, you know, these, these people living in poverty and these, these people not being able to, you know, like you said, attain, you know, a higher level of education to try to get out of what they're currently in. It's just making it so much worse overall, you know? Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, do you work in a a private practice or do you work in a clinic? Yeah. So I'm in a private practice. There's three, three physicians, three of us there. Okay. And with your patients that you have, have they like, I'd love to know, like, what, what are their thoughts about everything currently happening in your state? Like, I know you said some of them are are looking for more permanent birth control options and things like that, but like there, have they like voiced their thoughts to you at all about just like how they're feeling about everything? And if, you know, are they scared? Are they worried? Are some of them happy? I don't know. Like what have some of them been voicing to you and your colleagues? Yeah, you know, I think as far as my patients go, like I mentioned before, I mean, they're afraid, they're scared. That's like the main theme that I'm noticing with everyone. And then they, you can kind of sprinkle in a little bit of anger, like, hey, what, you know, why are they trying to control us? Like, I don't, th- this is so frustrating. And then just confusion too, because they're, they, they kind of know the laws in Arizona, but at the same time, they want to make sure that if they go to the hospital with, a with a problem such as you know a hemorrhaging patient during a with an incomplete abortion or miscarriage versus an ectopic pregnancy they want to know what what's going to happen to them and if they're going to be cared for some of my colleagues i haven't had a, a particular situation up to this point but some of my colleagues are just also just frustrated because they have certain cases where they know if they did a an abortion or a DNC, a dilatation and curatage of a of let's say a fetus or an embryo that we know is not viable, then that can eliminate the patient coming in with bleeding or hemorrhage. But because of these laws, now they're having to wait and just let the miscarriage, so to you know, quote unquote, take care of itself. But then when you do that, then that can cause more trauma for the patient, and then that can also lead to more risk of bleeding and infection and things like that. So there is that, that frustration from the physician standpoint as well. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I think I had read, uh, you know, an article about this somewhere, but you know, just the fact that there will be, you know, an increase in patients that, you know, just won't seek out care because they're so, as you said, some of them, you know, don't trust the healthcare system right. and are saying, you know, well, this is happening and I'm, I'm going to write it out at home. I'm not even going to seek, you know, medical care for this. And thus, you know, I mean, some of them might be okay, but then others will not and will come in much more sick, you know, had they, just intervened a little bit earlier would have been fine. I agree. I mean, I get, I I'm scared sometimes when I'm on call, you know, I think now with a, with this, with this new ruling, I, I think, you know, is a lady going to come into the ER hemorrhaging, you know, to the point where I'm not going to be able to save her or, 
And I, I mean, those are real fears that we have now as OBGYNs. Like, am I going to lose a patient because she was scared to come in or, or she had, you know, an unsafe abortion? I mean, at this point, mentioning, you know, kind of bringing all that together, more of these women of color are going to seek out unsafe abortions. And I think it's, it, the issue is not whether we do, we do or don't have abortions, but it's where they're going to get these abortions. You know, is it, is it going to be somewhere unsafe or is it going to be where, where they need to go, where they can get care, good quality care? Mm. I'm curious. So say, you know, I, I work in the emergency department I mean, I'm in Connecticut, so we don't have to worry about this yet, but you know, we see patients every day. I mean, if I work a 12 hour shift, I'm seeing multiple patients in that shift that are coming in with either a threatened AB or incomplete or, you know, what, whatever it might be. And so this is very much something that we see all the time, right? So it's extremely, extremely common. And, you know, therefore, I can't imagine you being on call and having to worry about this. And actually, my husband and I were talking about this because he's he does emergency medicine as well. And he's like, I'd love to hear more, you know, about the provider perspective of all of this, because he's like, if I was in a state like that, I, it would be very scary for me I, I, as a practicing provider, because <laughs> to worry about having to go to court and go through litigation and all, you know, first of all, cost, second of all, time, second of all, third of all, you know, you're, you're not able to provide the care for your patients because you're busy in court because you're fighting some case where you did the right thing by saving the woman's life. But, oh, this is up for discussion because lawmakers think it is. So all that being said, um, are you, do you have to say you had a patient that came in that was hemorrhaging from an incomplete abortion and you know that they need a DNC? Are you able to just immediately provide that care or are you having to go through, you know, a lawyer like your hospital's lawyer to discuss the case? Like, how is that working out for you there? This is what is allowed. So in our in Arizona, it says in in the case of a fetal death where the fetus doesn't have a heartbeat and is no longer considered alive, a provider may perform a medical abortion to remove the fetus from a mother's body. So I guess if a patient is, is it, that's kind of like a sticky situation. Cause you could be bleeding, you know, almost to death and still have a, a heartbeat exactly. And the fetus hasn't passed or you could do an ultrasound and the fetus could have already passed. And then you have to just go in to remove the remaining products of conception to help their, their bleeding stop. So yeah, like I said, I haven't had that situation personally yet, but Again, the law says the fetus doesn't where the fetus doesn't have a heartbeat and is no longer considered alive. But I would say what I would say is if she's coming in with an incomplete abortion, which basically means her cervix is open, her body is spontaneously expelling the pregnancy that to me, that's no longer considered alive. So I would say in that situation, because it it can say it can help or save the life of, of the patient, then I would do the DNC. And I don't think that I would have to question that or in, you know, a call like a lawyer per se. And they also say what else, what else is allowed is, you know, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy that is deemed life-threatening to the mother, providers may perform an abortion and then providers may prescribe and recommend 
and pharmacists are permitted to dispense drugs that will result in the end of an ectopic pregnancy or that will cause expulsion of the fetus in case of a intrauterine demise. But one thing that I have seen, my nurse practitioners were telling me is when we've been prescribing Cytotec or Mesoprostol, which can be one of the abortion drugs that's used, the pharmacy is calling us requesting records as to why why we're needing this medication and they're giving us kind of pushback on that. Now, are they worried about their own career? Like, you know, Correct. Is it, yeah. I, yes, I think that's what it is. <sighs> and the thing is, it's like we're prescribed, we prescribe Cytotec or Mesoprostol for not, we don't do it for only abortions, which our practice does, doesn't perform abortions or give medication for that. But we do it in the case of, let's say, we want to put an IUD in and we've tried and the cervix is very closed or stenotic. It helps to soften the cervix so we can get an IUD in or perform an endometrial biopsy where if a patient's having abnormal bleeding, we can t- test the cells and kind of get a sample of the cells. So it's like, why do I have to per- give you patient notes? Well, first of all, that's HIPAA, that's against HIPAA. And you, if we're prescribing it for you know, a certain reason besides an abortion, you should, you should dispense that medication. And so now we're thinking we'll make like a little note on the, on the prescription when we send it electronically, just kind of defining what what it's for. for. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Now I'm thinking too, like, you know, if you have a patient who their water breaks and they're only, I don't know, 17, 18, 19 weeks, the chances of that fetus living are zero. Right. And you're having, I mean, but say, you know, that there's still a heartbeat because, you know, it, it wasn't anything wrong with the baby. It was just, you know, something, who knows what the circumstances might've been, but the water breaks and, you know, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you have to give birth. I mean, it's inevitable that's going to happen. But I think there was a case like this actually recently where, you know, Mm -hmm. they did have to wait, they waited Um, and she got really sick. Right. Yeah. So that, that's the law in Arizona. It says if a fetus is alive, providers are not allowed to perform an abortion, even if the fetus is not expected to survive for long inside or outside of the womb. And that's horrific. That's just, I mean, that's just, that's malpractice when you really come down to it. So I can't can't believe I just read that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just, I, and you know, is this extremely common? No, it is not. But are you going to inevitably see a patient with this? Yes. Are you inevitably going to see a patient who still has a fetus with a heartbeat but is is hemorrhaging out and you need to? Yes. Like those things will happen, right? They're not so uncommon that they don't happen. So, so what do you, what would you do if you had to pay? Would you would have to you would have to be speaking with lawmaker like a lawyer and and going back and forth like to try to debate whether the the woman's life is worth it or I like, I just <laughs> like, where is the line drawn here? You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess if I, if I came up, if this situation happened when I was on call, you know, I think what I would have to do is I would have to talk to the medical ethics committee and say, you know, this lady is at risk for, endometritis or choriamnionitis, which is infection of the membranes and placenta or her uterus. And that can lead to sepsis and that can lead to death. So, you know, I mean, she, some, you know, a lot of times when these patients come in, they're not septic at that point, but 
you know, I, I have seen sepsis from these patients if the patient declines any intervention and they just want to kind of wait it out and then they come in very, very sick. And so I, I think it would it would have to go to a committee and we would, you know, hopefully get a decision based on what the patient is, is open to doing. Because I know some patients don't want to do anything even knowing the risks, but yeah, I mean, I just, I just can't believe this. Like, it's, it's just really, really sad. Mm. And then, of course, you're, you know, <laughs> wasting precious time in that. In the meantime, of like exactly. waiting for a committee to decide whether or not mm. your life is worthy, you know, exactly. or not. That's well, just wild. I had mentioned this, I think, before on on one of my episodes. But have you heard of that that case of the woman in Ireland? She was the one that she had died and basically they changed all of their laws based off of her, her death. Yeah. Um, I briefly, I briefly know what you're referring to. Yeah. Um, I'm forgetting her. Her name is, it's very long. Oh, Savita. Savita Halapanavar. I'm probably mm-hmm. not saying that. That, sounds, correctly. that sounds familiar. But yeah, she was a dentist of Indian origin. She was living in Ireland. She died in 2012. She died from sepsis. She had asked for an abortion but was denied on legal grounds and died from sepsis from that from that fetus. So after that, they they changed their laws <laughs> in that. But you know, it's it's crazy because how many people are going to have to have serious health complications or die before we recognize that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done this, you know, it's like, at what cost will this be? Who knows? I agree. I mean, it's, it's just, then that's why I think patients are, are asking, you know, they're, they're that's where they're, that anger comes in and the fear because it's, it's like, so if I show up, you know, are you going to be able to help me is basically what they're asking me. And I'm, and, and, you know, I went to med school to help patients to, to basically four years of med school, four years of, of residency to know what the standard of care is for these patients that, that show up and, and for me to be able to help them to the best of my ability and my knowledge and my expertise for practicing for 10 years. But, you know, I have to listen to this lawmaker who has a political agenda and he's never seen a patient in his life and i have to do what you know what they what they deem is is appropriate right right it's just it's so wild all of it you know oh have you had patients i'm just curious have you had any of them that you know wish they could like move or anything are they are any of them being like that are they doing anything extreme like that or not not just, yet, but yeah. I think they probably are considering it. I mean, the thing about our state is so many people are moving here, especially people from California. But, you know, California is a safe haven for abortion. So, I mean, there may be there may be some tables turning where people are like, you know what, we're going to stay here or we're going to go back just based on, you know, fear or, or what, whatever's going on in their in their life and, and the situation at the time. But, yeah, you know, I haven't heard that, but I'm sure there's some people who are, are considering it for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's lucky to be, I mean, four hours is a very long time, especially for someone if they don't have transportation or if they don't have money to get over there. But some of these states are in the middle of all 
states that have abortion bans. And I mean, you have to get on a plane or you'd have to drive like 20 hours. I mean, you know, some of them just don't even have that more. I mean, it's not even, I wouldn't call it easy access, but you know, it's, it's at least only a few hours. Whereas some of these states I feel like are just, there's no, there's no option for some of these people to get out, especially those in poverty, because they don't even have enough money to even, you know, obtain the abortion, never mind trying to travel to get to where, you know, they would need to go. One thing I was going to mention is there to our listeners that abortionfunds.org is a great resource for people who, like you were mentioning how there may be several states in between, or they may not be able to pay for transportation. I don't know. I don't have a particular case that, that I've had to give this information out to patients, but I know that they can help with money for transportation, a hotel, even some abortion costs. It's just a matter of reaching out to them. So it's abortionfunds.org. Perfect. Do you have any other, you know, ways that people can help like in, within the community? I have a few other websites that I wanted to, that I've been, that I've been sharing with my patients. Abortionondemand.org also is really good. Unfortunately, though, you have to be in a state where abortion is legal and they, they have this software where they can confirm like your location. And so they do take that seriously. And then there's heyjane.co, which you can donate funds to for an abortion there as well. And then I was kind of reading about these fake clinics that are kind of popping up and they're probably becoming a little bit more prevalent with everything that's going on. And I think I've seen them in the past when I lived in Texas and trained there. It's they're what they what they're called is usually they'll say like abortion crisis clinic and they'll say, are you scared? Are you pregnant? Do you need help? And basically what what the mission for their organization is to dissuade people from getting abortion. So it's really important to, to be careful where you're going and don't make sure that you're seeking out the, the appropriate places. I am, I'm really glad you brought that up. Okay. So in 2021, there was approximately 3,000 of those, the, the pregnancy crisis center, they call them. They might even advertise that they provide family planning and, and all of these different things that a typical women's care facility would provide. But you head in there and they take your info and they probably send it out to who knows who, right? That's information that's no longer yours and it belongs to somebody else. They will show you, some of them, you know, all of them are different, but they can show you videos of probably the most dramatic of all cases of of abortion and and things like that and you know I'm sure they give out pamphlets and and some of these pamphlets have you know information in them that are just it's just completely false information I actually debunked some of that with Dr. Perez last week but yeah I mean it's something to really I know some people might feel desperate and heading to one of those and they're often they often position themselves so that they're next to or close to an abortion center or, you know, or where one used to be. Right. So that's, and it's all part of like, it's, it's good marketing. Right. So like in some of these States where it's currently banned, you know, this abortion clinic goes out the, goes out the window and then in its place is a pregnancy crisis center. And somebody who might not know might, might go there seeking some sort of care and, Oh, you know, now your information is in this database where it says, okay, this woman, you know, was seeking out contraception. She has had an abortion in the past. She doesn't want to have another one, you know, whatever it might be, whatever that information might be. You don't want that in some database somewhere where people yeah, are seeking I mean, out. It, yeah. I mean, it's super, super scary. You know, they're, they're predators in a way because I mean, they, they 
really just want to dissuade you from getting an abortion. And then, and then you're, and then these, these women are left to kind of just, they're confused. They're like, wait, what, what's happening here? And I mean, they know what they want and it's just, it's just sad that those exist. So yeah, it's, and like you said, it's super important to realize that they can be put, they position themselves close to like, for example, a Planned Parenthood or something like that. So it's really, really important to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we covered a lot of stuff. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we, that you don't think we touched on? I just wanted to mention briefly that emergency contraception is still available in these restrictive states. As far as Arizona goes, I know that it is still available. I mean, you can get emergency contraception online. You can find it at at certain stores like Target, Walmart, things like that. So please, please keep that in mind that we still have that available. It's best to take it within 72 hours of unprotected intercourse, but you can take it up to five days after. And there's a few different options such as plan B, which is a one-time dose. And then there's the Erdopristol, which is also one that you do have to have prescribed for you, but in Arizona, the pharmacy should be able to dispense that. And then also a copper IUD can be considered emergency contraception as well. But again, within best within 72 hours, but okay, up to five days. I think that one might be harder to come just given some some offices have IUDs on in stock, like in their office where they could just place it without without any issue. But sometimes other offices do require that we get an authorization and and it takes a while. So sometimes that may not be the best option, but still realize that that is an option. Are all of those relatively the same as far as effectiveness or is one more effective compared to the other? Yeah. So, you know, I think, well, I know that the levonorgestrel or the plan B, the one more commonly known, it, it can be a little less effective based on your weight. So they say if you're over 165 pounds, it may not be as effective, but I still say if that's all you have available to mm-hmm. you, use it. That's mm-hmm. just in the studies. You know, that's what the mm-hmm. studies say. The Earl Pristor Ella is what is like the trade name for it. That one is effective over 165 pounds and can be slightly a little more effective in terms of prevention and delaying ovulation. But either one is is still a great option. So would you say that, you know, if you if you are a patient who is, you know, say you're over the 165 pound mark, would you try to get the the other one versus versus? Yeah, I would I would attempt to get the other one if you can, just to especially if you have the time, it seems like there if you can get an appointment with your OBGYN or one of the nurse practitioners or PAs, um, I'm sure that that they may they would be hopefully helpful to to get you in ASAP mm-hmm. and to be able to dis- get that dispensed at the pharmacy but yeah I would I would opt more for or Ella All right awesome So let me ask you two questions that I ask everyone but these don't have to be related to anything that we talked about today they're just fun questions So the first question is if you could give advice to moms what would that piece of advice be? Ooh, <laughs> I know that's a great one. That's a great question. So, you know, I think it kind of touches a little bit on what we've said before. I mean, some days 
you feel like you're not the best mom, but you did great at work. And then other days you're like, I was a great mom today, but yeah, I wasn't, maybe I didn't see as many patients or I didn't do as much as I could have at work. So I think it's okay to not be everything to everyone all the time. Like meaning, you know, you're going to have those days where you're going to feel good about what you were able to do as a mom or as a, as a physician or as a a medical provider. And that's okay. Cause you can't be everything for everyone every day. And so that's what I've learned. I have to just kind of make peace with that and, and do my best and do what I can, what I can do for my family and also what I can do for my patients. And of course we, we strive to be the best we can in, in both aspects of our lives, but we have to be realistic and, and kind of balance ourselves out when, mm-hmm. when possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. The last question is, if you can make one meal for your family that everybody would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? <laughs> oh, that's a great one. So there, let me see. That's a good question. We usually do chili. So we'll do like usually a turkey ground turkey and then we'll add in just some chili beans and 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 they these boys love that love chili and my husband loves chili so and we'll maybe eat a little bit of cornbread on the side every now and then if we're if we're okay with carbs that day (laughs) (laughs) do you make it in the crock pot or do you yeah in the crock pot yeah 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 i love that's like one of our fall go-tos you know yeah Um, for sure i mean it's hot in arizona but it's still these boys love it and yeah i'm like okay if we're down to you know the last you know we're like what do we make for dinner we can throw that together and, and it usually goes over well so yeah love it All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Montez, for taking time out of your busy schedule and your busy day to talk with us. This was really great. Thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.